Well, good morning. If you happen to duck in late, my name is Bill Fullalove, and I'm returning to the pastoral staff here at McLean after having spent the past three years teaching full-time at Reformed Theological Seminary. And... <clears throat> you know, my wife Jill, my two girls, and myself, we're just incredibly pleased to get to be back here with you and to, to start to build into each other's lives again. And the summer sermon series is a look at the book of Proverbs and attempt to ask the question, what does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live wisely in light of the grace we've received? And a proverb is sort of like the tweet of the Old Testament, if you will. 140 characters, one thought, get out. What that means, though, is that if you want to really build what you understand about an area, you don't build it off of a single proverb. You want to look at everything that the book of Proverbs has to say about the question, and ideally even the scriptures beyond. So you'll notice on the handout for this morning that we've included not just the main text of Proverbs 14.30, but other texts from Proverbs and beyond as well. Now, I found it ironic because the topic James left us with this morning is Proverbs and Envy. And you see, we've been real estate shopping in Northern Virginia for the past three months. <laughs> so, Proverbs and Envy. And one other point, you'll notice if you look at 27.4, the last text, that it uses the word jealousy, not the word envy. In our language, in English, we distinguish the two, or at least we're supposed to. Often people don't. And jealousy is a concern that somebody else will get what you have. Envy is wanting something that somebody else has. Just know that in Hebrew, neither in the language nor the thought, there isn't a difference. It's the same word, same concept, just two sides of the same coin. So our scriptures this morning, Proverbs on the book, um, the book of Proverbs on the topic of envy, starting with 1430. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their hearts devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand and worship. Please pray with me if you would. God our Father, we come to you in need because we recognize that nothing will happen unless you, Holy Spirit, penetrate our hearts. Your word is powerful and active, but our hearts are hard. So we pray that you would open our hearts to the word working in us. So you do that for our good and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, about sometime around the year 2000, 
The Emory University primatologist, and I might add committed atheist, Franz Duval, did what became a very famous study on monkeys. And in the study, what he first did is he taught his monkey group at the Yerkes Primate Center to buy a slice of cucumber. They would give a little pebble to the researcher. The researcher would give them back a cucumber slice. The monkeys caught on quickly, and everybody was quite happy. And the monkeys gave the pebbles. They ate the cucumbers, snacking away. And then he did this. He gave one monkey its cucumber, and then he gave the next monkey a big, sweet, juicy grape. And yes, monkeys like grapes more than cucumbers. Upon seeing this, the first monkey went, well, absolutely bananas. <laughs> Got violently angry, refused to buy its cucumber, in fact, threw it back in the researcher's face. What happened? It was completely content with its cucumber for its pebble just a moment ago. But the moment it saw another monkey getting what looked like a better deal, it got violently angry. Now, this got published in the journal Nature, but if you go on YouTube, you can find a video of it from a TED Talk that Duvall did, and it is hysterical. From complete bliss to violent anger because one person got a cucumber and the next person got a grape. But that's what we do, right? You know, the monkeys aren't the only ones who go monkey because it's not seemingly equal. We envy. And the book of Proverbs actually has quite a lot to say about this thing of envy. When we net it all down, it's going to come out to this. The gospel frees us from envy because it lets us live for other people instead of against them. The gospel frees us from envy because it lets us live for other people, not against them. Now, this is one of those things, the tricks and the how. So we're going to look at three hows this morning. How we all envy, how envy destroys us, and how the gospel frees us from envy. So first, how we all envy. Now, it's implicit in the last proverb we read, which has a bit of a double meaning. 27.4, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Now, that's true on the receiving end, If someone is jealous of you, it's a deeper wrath and a deeper burn, even in their anger. But it's also true on the giving end. It's incredibly hard to control our anger, as David preached last week. It may even be harder to control our own envy and jealousy. Now, um, in that regard, it's stunning how many times the New Testament picks that up and mentions the word envy. I've given you only one of them here on the handout, Um, Galatians 5 is one of those lists Paul gives. In this case, it's a list comparing life in the gospel to life outside the gospel. And listen to his list here from Galatians 5. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, And things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with that Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's quite a company that envy keeps, isn't it? 
But isn't it interesting? After all of that, Paul picks one of them to close it out and call out and particularly warn the Galatians against. And which is it? Envy. Why? Well, because it comes so natural to us. Uh, Real estate shopping in Northern Virginia again. Um, It's been very interesting for me. You know the old adage, you come here and you pay more than double for less than half. And absolutely true. I've experienced it. And we knew that. That was okay. But what's been really fascinating to me has been that putting up with the downsizing has been a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And, you know, I really have had to talk to Jill and to meditate on and come to the Lord with, why am I finding it hard to let go of this stuff? I mean, after all, it's just stuff. And you know what the Lord showed me as I really thought about this a lot? He showed me I'm just not near as spiritually mature as I thought I was. You know, I mean, frankly, I like stuff. And I like having more of it than the guy next to me. You know, it's so easy to envy the space that the guy next door has when he decked his house and put up a big one, or the kitchen that the person put in, or the boat that the guy had. You name it. Envy just comes really easy to us. It's so ubiquitous that people think it's natural. Try this one out. Um, If you were growing up, if you had any brothers and sisters, when your sibling got praised by your parents, say they made a creation like Legos, and they come and bring it, and the parents say, oh, that's great, what did you do? You may have ran over with your own because you kind of jealous of that praise that your brother or sister was getting, right? And if you don't think this is true, have more than one kid, and I guarantee you, you will see it. <laughs> it just comes natural to us. Envy is just easy. Now, you might say, look, that's just really not my problem. I know I got my issues, but envy, that's just not the one for me. Well, maybe, but I kind of doubt it, and here's why I kind of doubt it. The scriptures say that we all as believers are being transformed into the image of Christ. They also say we're not fully there yet. Which means sin is never fully gone from us until either Jesus comes back or we die. And what that means is it might be more embryonic. It might be more of a seed form. Or maybe it's full-blown. But somewhere in there, if we look hard, envy's working on us. That comparison thing is working on us. You know, you don't, it's not just stuff. You can envy a situation. This often happens when a couple has a child. If one of them stays home and the other goes to work, the one that goes to work envies the one who stayed home. The one that stays home envies the one that goes to work. Neither of them is as easy as you think. You can envy your own life before that thing happened. You know, the appearance trap, um, the gym trap. I fell into this one this week. So moving is horrible for self-care. So for three months, I didn't go to the gym. Last week I went back, and so I, you know, I knew it was going to be a little rough, but I put on weight and I started working. I was feeling pretty good. I was like, hey, I'm doing all right. I haven't lost as much as I thought, and then I looked over there. And the bad thing is he wasn't any bigger than me, and he was putting up twice the weight I was. And he looked good. And y'all, I'm, I'm terribly vain and terrible, apparently, because you know what I did? I chose flight over fight. I went over to the other side of the gym and worked out until he left. And then I went back and finished. The dude had his earbuds in. He wasn't paying attention to me. He didn't know I was there, but I knew he was there. Right? Envy just comes so easy. You know, it might be not even that. I was in academia for the past three years. You think we didn't know how everybody's Amazon sales rank went? Yeah, it can be anything. Religious work doesn't save you. Look at here, Philippians 1.15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, 
Now, envy is all of our problem. Whether it's there fully baked or whether it's there in just an embryonic form, it's working on all of us. So before we go on, where's, where's envy for you? Now, it's really easy to diagnose if we'll just name it. Who's the person that you look at and just say, man, I wish I could? Or what's the situation that you daydream about if I just had? Or where do you feel your lack? Now, truth is, envy works on us all. How do you envy? Second thing, how envy destroys us. Our main text for this morning, Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. The thing about envy is that it does a silent destruction from the inside out. It's slow and it's quiet, but let neither the quietness nor the slowness fool you. It's brutally destructive. It's like the oak tree that went down in the storm and you look at it and it had this veneer of bark and strength around a huge rotten interior. A tree like that's a time bomb, right? It's big enough to do unbelievable damage on the way down, but weak enough that it can't stand. That's what envy is in us, a time bomb. How does envy destroy us? Well, biblically, three ways. Two in this life, one in the next. First, or A, I guess, if you want to keep an outline, Envy destroys us because we always lose. There's always somebody faster, bigger, stronger, smarter, better looking, more successful. Um, I brought in one of my favorite children's books, Yertle the Turtle. Because Dr. Seuss saw this truth clearly among many. So listen to the beginning. On the faraway island of Salamasand, Yertle the turtle was king of the pond. A nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm. Plenty to eat. The turtles had everything turtles might need, and they were all happy, quite happy indeed. They were. Until Yertle, the king of them all, decided the kingdom he ruled was too small. I'm ruler, said Yertle, of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. With this stone for a throne, I look down on my pond, but I cannot look down on the places beyond. This throne that I sit on is too, too low down. It ought to be higher, he said with a frown. If I could sit high, how much greater I'd be. What a king. I'd be ruler of all that I see. And if you remember the story, the problem is he builds his throne a little higher, but then he sees something that's still higher than him. So he builds his throne even higher and sees higher, higher, higher. Until the entire thing comes crashing down. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. You know, this is the Facebook trap. I fell into the gym trap this week. You might have fallen into the Facebook trap. Um, You know, moms. That mom that you look on Facebook and she has, I don't know, seven kids... They all look perfect. She's creating all sorts of interesting crafts for them to do. And she takes them out twice a week to learn community service and, you know, and culture them well. And meanwhile, she's making organic baby food on the side. And by the way, she looks perfect and cute and perky in her little gym outfit. Um, one of the blogs I was looking at this, this week to get ready, 
Um, it was a mom who just said, it's so expletive hard to be imperfect in a world of perfect people. And you know the trap here, right? You're comparing your real life to their public life. People don't put their real life on Facebook except very, very brave people. People put what they want life to be, their ideal. You know, it's the same thing with all the body image stuff we struggle with. You're comparing your real body to their airbrush bodies. Even the models don't look like this in real life. The trap of envy is that we always lose. Now let me come back to my real estate spiritual struggles. If you are feeling even the slightest bit of pity for me, don't. You know, truth is, we live in a wonderful home, in a wonderful neighborhood, that is far more than I ever dreamed I would end up in when I went into ministry. Now, I mean, it is true that the staff at a place like a church could probably earn more on the open market if they went into private industry. But it's also true that you're attending a church that works pretty hard to take good care of its staff. We have plenty of space. We have what we need. There are only four of us. We're not cheaper by the dozen or something. You know, I have nothing to complain about. But you know what? I still do. Envy is never satisfied. You never win. Second thing, the way envy destroys us, B, I guess, is... It makes us a monster. Now you think a monster? That's a little strong. Well, let me suggest to you biblically two things. First, Titus 3.3 says that envy leads to hate. It says that envy leads to hate. Now, think about that Facebook mom again for me. You know, what do you say when you're in sort of your catty moment to your friends that you really trust, or even in just in your head? You think, I hate her. Now, I know that's kind of overstatement, but, you know, maybe, maybe the words reflect a little more than you think. Um, guys, you're no, by no means immune to this. You know, the guy who keeps getting promoted at work, you're like, man, I hate that dude. <laughs> or the guy who walks into the bar and every head turns. That never happens to you. Oh, I can't stand him. Now, here's the biblical news about that. If you let that little germ of hate stay in the dark... It morphs into something ugly and awful. Mark chapter 15, verse 10. The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews have delivered Jesus up to Pontius Pilate to crucify him. Now, Pilate's no dummy. Pilate is a wimp who won't stand up for justice, but he's no dummy. And he brings out two prisoners, and this is basically a means of him trying to appease the population. He says, I'm going to release one to you. You can have Barabbas, he's a murderer. Or you can have Jesus, the king of the Jews. Which one do you want? And Mark tells us why he says that, verse 10. Because he knew that it was out of envy that the chief priests and the leaders had delivered Jesus up to him. Here's my question for you. Do you think that when they were young pups at the beginning of their careers, these guys went into religious work and work in the synagogue and work in the priesthood with the thought that, you know what, if I work really hard and study real hard and advance really well in my career, maybe someday at the pinnacle of my career, I will have the success of rejecting the Messiah that God sent for us and becoming a murderer and crucifying him. I'm pretty sure that's not what they thought at the beginning of their career. But hate, when left to germinate, becomes something remarkably ugly. And we all have that seed in us. We all envy which leads to hate, which leads to... And then C, third part, in fact, envy leads to God's wrath, God's judgment, justly so. 
and even death. Now I say that, and I don't know how you react, but I go, come on, full of love. You're telling me that I got a little jealous of my neighbor and therefore I'm under the wrath of God and hell and everything else? That's a little much. And I get that, but let's think biblically for a second. Romans 1, Paul gives another one of his lists. And in the list in Romans 1, it's a list of things that deserve God's wrath. And he closes it, envy's on the list, by the way. And he closes it then with this verse. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to them who practice them. I'm trying to convince you, I hope by grace that it makes some sense, that envy's not just some small, victimless, little personal thing. Our lives are at stake. Our souls are at stake. It makes us alien from God. And here's the good news. Third thing, the gospel frees us from envy. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had rotten my bones, well, let's do it this way. If I have a bacteria running around in my body, I'm going to the doctor because I want an antibiotic that will get that bacterium out of my body. All of it. If I have gangrene, I'm going to a doctor. I want him or her to do everything possible to get that off me, get that out of me. If we have rot in our bones, we want God to do whatever is necessary to take that out of us. What would that look like? How would the gospel free us from envy? Um, you know, 1 Peter 2, verse 1, says, put away all envy. And it's interesting that um, Duvall study I mentioned got picked up by CNN a couple years later. This is the article from CNN.com. They say comparison is the thief of joy. And this, as it turns out, is one cliche that has a raft of empirical evidence backing it up. But there's another truth about social comparison. It's pretty much inevitable, so you may as well learn to use it to your advantage. When it comes to using social comparison to boost your own motivation, here's the key rule to keep in mind. Seek favorable comparisons if you want to feel happier. And seek unfavorable comparisons if you want to push yourself harder. You may not be able to quit your social comparison habit, but you can make it work for you. That's dangerously close to what Paul just warned about in Romans 1. You know, Duvall concluded that, in fact, envy is just natural. So did the CNN article. In fact, any social scientist will, because if you empirically study the world, it is always there. But this is where the theologian knows more than the social scientist. Not everything that is ought to be. Some things that are ought not. You and I were not made to envy. We were made to live out the gospel in our lives. Now, what would that look like? How would it be? Well, you know, as I'm having my little real estate crisis, um, I'm sitting there as my daughter's going to bed, and I'm dallying around with, wow, I wish we could have gotten... You know, you've got to understand, my four-year-old daughter, Evie, is the one who got shorted the most. Because she got the small room in an Arlington original house. And if you've lived in Arlington, you know what the small room is. And so I'm sitting there going, wow, we're so lucky, but then I'm just dallying with this sin. I'm playing with rot in my bones and saying, I wish... I... And she prays, dear God, thank you so much for my wonderful perfect room. Out of the mouth of babes. Um, you know, her older sister's room, bigger than hers. She doesn't think about that. She's simply gospel grateful for what she has. First Timothy 6, verse 6, 
gives the contrast in the Bible to envy. The contrast to envy is contentment with godliness is great gain. Now, what would that look like? How would we nurture that kind of contentment? Here's what you can't do, just to warn you. What you can't do is go functionally Buddhist and say, well, the key thing then is for me just not to want anything that much. If I just don't really want things, I'll be content. News for you is this, it won't work. Because you and I were made to want things. No matter how ascetic you try to make your life, it's still going to be there. You really won't get rid of it. And here's the good news about that. That's not what God wants you to do. Look back at these passages from Proverbs. Notice that four of them actually do not say, quit, quit envying. What do they say? They say, quit envying the wicked. You know, it's interesting. I surveyed through both Old and New Testament, and what I found out is there's one use repeated in the Bible where the word envy or jealousy is used positively. Almost always used of God, in fact. James 5, 4 is a good example, or I think it's 4, 5, yeah. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So wait, what gives? You know, pastor, you just said that envy is rotten our bones. Now you're telling me God envies. What's the answer here? The answer is to understand what it is that we treasure. There's nothing wrong with desire. In fact, there's nothing even wrong with such an intense desire that you can use the word envy or jealousy for it if we would just desire the things God desires. You know, we are so busy envying situations or bodies or riches or stuff or houses. He envies the spirit he's made to dwell in us because he knows those other things will destroy us. And instead, he wishes for us to be everything that we could be by living in the gospel. Now, how would you actually do that? Well, Corinthians is helpful here. It says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. The solution is to love other people's success. To love it just as much if your coworker gets a promotion and you don't. To love it just as much if the other guy makes varsity. To love it just as much as if the role goes to someone else. If he or she gets into UVA or William and Mary or wherever place you want to go. To live a life where we love others' success as much as our own. Now, how could that happen? What could it be? Well, realize this is what Jesus did. Scriptures say Jesus was tempted in all things that people are tempted. It means Jesus was tempted to envy. How do you think so? Well, you know, he didn't have a home. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He was always dependent on others for his food. There are all sorts of those things, but I doubt that's the big one. Before time began in the Trinity, God made a covenant, knowing that our sin would come. Father and Son together covenant that God the Father will pour out all his wrath on God the Son, who will have become incarnate lived a very difficult life and then be crucified in the most painful way possible and that's hardly it, receive all the wrath of God the Father. If you had to pick one of those two, which would you rather pick? Well, the answer, of course, is neither because they're both horrible. But do you not think that God the Son, Christ, would be tempted to envy the Father's role? Philippians 2, 
he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being crucified on the cross. Christ died for us because he loved our good more than his. What would it look like to cultivate that kind of contentment? Well, again, back to 1 Timothy 6, Paul has again laid out the gospel. And he says in verse 4, if you live outside the gospel, you are setting yourself up for envy. In contrast, he says, though, verses 6 to 8, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. What would it look like to cultivate contentment? Well, back to the earlier question. When is it that you envy? What is it that you envy? Who is it that you envy? What would it look like to love that person's success more than your own? What would it look like to love your spouse's success more than yours? What would it look like to love your co-worker's success more than yours? Your child's success more than yours? Here's a crazy biblical idea. What would it look like to love your enemy's success more than your own? Because that's what God says Christ did for us. Corinthians, while we were still enemies, Christ laid down his life for us. Now, if he can do that in his death, it frees you and me to do it in our lives. So that person you envy, brass tacks, what would it mean this week to love his or her success? Not to just endure it, not to grit your teeth and get through it, but to love his or her success. Christ did it for you, he did it for me. Go out and try and do it for him or her. And you just might even find that you'll be remarkably more content with your own setup. May he give us grace to try. Let's pray. God, our Father, we come to you with prayers that you would work in our hearts over this week to love those around us. To in some small way believe the gospel enough that we would try to live it out. We know you owe us nothing and therefore we owe you everything because you've saved us just by grace. So we give ourselves to you, we praise you, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.